In today's podcast, we will provide a framework and practice pointers to allow practitioners to focus their investigative efforts when dealing with cases that involve complex fraud patterns. As we all know, the global pandemic has brought about significant changes in how we interact and how we conduct business and fraudsters, con artists, Ponzi schemers, and the like are exploiting ever-increasing opportunities brought about by these changes. So these fraudsters are engaging in more and more complex schemes to spend the money from their victims to conceal, to conceal assets from creditors and ultimately to dissipate these assets. And by the time the victim catches onto the fraud and seeks legal assistance, or perhaps you know, when the fraudulent scheme collapses and a fiduciary is then appointed, they are a significant information deficit that typically prevents them from recovering assets. So there are various scenarios in which a client may need assistance. Some of these may include where the proceeds of the fraud may be on the move, for instance, and there's no legal proceeding underway to assist a judgment or an arbitral award. Or where the assets at issue do not appear readily collectible. Another scenario could be where there is a concern that the judgment debtor will not have the assets uh, so that there could be a collection, or the judgment debtor will be unwilling to satisfy a judgment. And of course, we have our insolvency situation, where an entity that's engaging in a fraudulent scheme is placed into an insolvency proceeding, whether it be a receivership or bankruptcy, or where a debtor in bankruptcy has undisclosed assets. So in addition to this, what we have seen in many of our cases is that these fact patterns include, oftentimes, cross-border activity. It could be that the fraud scheme involves an offshore jurisdiction or the assets are concealed in these, are in these foreign jurisdictions. So that these situations are a layer of complexity that may require specialized counsel, the techniques and the guidance that we'll discuss today will assist you to evaluate the evidence and to plan, to plan your steps to assist your asset recovery effort. So our job is always to obtain recovery for our clients, and oftentimes the only way of doing so is by unwinding the fraud. So in our discussion today, we'll first provide a brief introduction to fraud and highlight the importance of examining the mindset of the fraudster. Then we will touch upon some tips for conducting priesthood investigations. We'll then provide an overview of the techniques that we have used to decode fraudulent fact patterns. And finally, we will explore the ways by which you can use discovery to obtain critical information. So turning over to slide number four, what is fraud? And as we're embarking on this discussion uh, in analyzing fraud, I think it's important to take a moment to discuss and acknowledge what is fraud. And we oftentimes hear our clients say things like, I was scammed, I was defrauded, or simply, someone stole my money. And we associate fraud with a significant range of activity. It can be that someone lied someone lied uh, to someone else in order to purchase, to convince them to purchase property, uh, or it could be a person uh, that invested in a Ponzi scheme. It can also involve something as simple as an insolvent person transferring property for less than reasonable value. And we also see some guidance that is offered by courts. So the Supreme Court has noted that fraud connotes perjury, falsification, concealment, or misrepresentation. In the court, Seventh Circuit notes that fraud is a generic term 
which embraces all the multifarious means which human ingenuity can devise and which are resorted to by one individual to gain an advantage over another, by false suggestion or by the suppression of truth. And then it adds that no definite and verbal rule can be laid down as a general proposition for defining fraud. And it continues as to what it includes. So in short, fraud is best described as a situation involving some form of deception which causes harm to a victim. It is difficult to define it as it captures a vast array of activity, but it is clear to us that it is like obscenity in that you know it when you see it. So now that we discussed the meaning of fraud, we turn over to slide number five and discuss why it is important to understand the motivations behind fraudulent conduct. And an important tool that's used by anti-fraud professionals is the fraud triangle. And this device was initially created by sociologist Donald Cressy to identify the motivation behind someone's fraudulent activity. It was initially applied in the context of occupational fraud. So for instance, what motivates an employee in a position of trust to embezzle? But it is also applicable in other contexts that involve fraudulent conduct. So we have three parts of the fraud triangle, and these are pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, right? The first one is pressure, and this is the crime motivator. So, you know, we ask whether the fraudster having financial problems, or perhaps there's a lavish lifestyle that the fraudster wants to maintain, or maybe the business is going through a rough patch. And sometimes the pressure is not motivated by external factors such as these, but it might just be internal factors such as this individual's greed. Next, we have opportunity. And the opportunity is the method by which the fraudster conducts the wrongdoing. And this could be where the management of a company has unfettered access to the financials and there's no segregation of duties. Or it could be where the financial advisor is directing clients to invest in securities for which that advisor is receiving an undisclosed benefit. Or it could be where a person is presenting an, oppor an investment opportunity that just simply seems too good to be true. Finally, we have rationalization. And this is, this is what includes um, what we might call the hope and hopes situation, for instance, where someone conducts wrongful conduct and their hope is that the situation will eventually get better, right? Such as when management, you know, might manufacture positive financial for one quarter in the hope that things will get back to normal and they can rectify it by the next quarter. Or we've also seen that some investment schemes turn into Ponzi schemes, uh, and initially the fraudster thought or had the idea that they will be able to pay back those, those losses. And sometimes the wrongdoer rationalizes their conduct because they're disgruntled. So it could be that they they think that they work hard enough to earn this, or that they just want to get back at the company or a person. So the rationalization is sometimes difficult to identify as, you know, many individuals are different, motivated by different factors. But when you're contacted by a client, though, the client typically advises you as to the mechanism by which they were victimized. So this likely reveals the opportunity element. So the focus of our investigations oftentimes should be to attempt to understand both the pressure element as well as rationalization of fraudster. 
consideration of these factors provide a look into the fraudster's mind. So, you know, Bob, now that we've seen how the fraud triangle focuses uh, on the mindset of the fraudster, can you tell us a little bit about how the mindset shapes the financial investigation? Uh, Juan, thanks very much. And um, I really welcome this opportunity to briefly speak about the profession of forensic and investigative accounting. And of course, the focus is financial investigations as we will make no reference to litigation accounting. And of course, our remarks supplement the handout that Juan referred to earlier. So first I'll address slide number five, the state of mind, the triangle that Juan has just spoken to. And I want to focus on the state of mind of a wrongdoer and how entering the mind is crucial in deconstructing a fraud or any other form of financial wrongdoing. You will see this in our case examples uh, over the next uh, uh, little while here. In lesson learned number three, and on page five of the handout, we have one example of the power of the mind and the proof of the triangle. Here we make reference to the former governor in the state of Virginia. And we concluded that the merger of motive, opportunity, and personal financial need is a mindset that overcomes any standard of deterrence, no matter its foundation. And that standard of deterrence can be at the corporate level it can be, or in the public level uh, within governments. We'd also note that we very seldom find a financial impropriety that has an exit strategy. In essence, the perpetrator typically becomes boxed into his circumstances with no out other than surrender. Now let's talk about the mindset of the forensic accountant. We have a list of 20 factors presented in lesson learned number two on pages three and four under the heading of mindset requirements. These were published in a second edition book in 1995 entitled Fraud Auditing and Forensic Accounting that was co-authored by Jack Bologna and myself. From the list of factors, we have the mindset objective for the forensic accounting. And that is to seek relevant information whether or not supportive of your client's position. In other words, we look for good news and bad news. This information is obtained from persons and documents within the financial world, and we report findings to the client in an independent and objective manner, recognizing that bias is the greatest enemy for a forensic accountant. We have two points of the 20 that are the most important. The first is that the forensic accountant understands the need to recreate history by accumulating puzzle pieces of information in random sequence. As a result, this means that information the forensic accountant learns in the early days of a case must be remembered throughout the investigation because they may be relevant near the end. And the second point is that the forensic accountant is always looking to identify conduct 
that is not in the normal course of personal or business conduct. These appear as nuances. They appear as you review financial transactions. Uh, in this context of not in the normal course of business or personal conduct. Before continuing, we have a brief case example on this issue of memory. Some time ago, the Attorney General of Trinidad asked us to investigate a politician who was now deceased, and this was in Trinidad. His name was Johnny H. O'Halloran. He was also known as Mr. 10%. He had died without intestate, leaving behind an estate of only $10,000 in traveler checks. But he had a son, Johnny E., who was living in Toronto. The case was focused on his son as the objective was twofold, asset recovery and to set a deterrence to stop future politicians from similar behavior. You'll hear the name John Rahr, who was based in the Barbados and was a go-between for Mr. 10%. And I'm referring to an article that was written about this case, and I'm just going to read two paragraphs to focus on this memory issue. Rahr's testimony had many repercussions, one of which was to help convince the Ontario Supreme Court in January 1989 to order John E., to freeze his assets and to provide full financial disclosure of all his business interests. Among the voluminous material Johnny produced, Lindquist noticed something that twigged the memory. There was 1.7 million US in a bank account for a company in Amsterdam. The signing officers were John Bowen and John Fleet. I thought, where have I seen the name Bowen before? And then I remembered it was Johnny O's mother's name, which I had seen on his passport. Then I looked more closely at Fleet's name, and I thought I recognized the handwriting. Sure enough, when I dug up an old $12,500 check that Johnny had endorsed, it was the same handwriting. It was dirty money, and they proved it by not using their real name. We added this finding to our list of asset recoveries that eventually totaled $7.5 million. So returning to the mindset objective of a forensic accountant, the mindset is a composition of the knowledge of fraud, business, and accountancy. In this context, fraud is a generic term for any form of financial wrongdoing. Business is the knowledge of what information is or should be available in the financial world, followed by the ability to identify only the relevant information needed that is pursuant to the case circumstances. So in summary, the mindset of a forensic accountant is applied at the corporate level to create the most efficient means of confirming or refuting an allegation of financial propriety. Through the investigative process, the patterns of conduct are identified and they provide insight into the mind of the perpetrator. Often the key issue that is answered is the question of intent. To put this mind approach into a personal conduct uh, context, the study of your personal checking account would reveal 
a mindset. It's the same at the corporate level. So with that, I return back to Juan, who will address slide number six. Thank you, Bob. And moving on to slide number six, first suit investigation. Uh, we now know that since our focus is the mindset of the fraudster, Askita deconstructing fraud, you can tailor your initial investigation, and typically it's occurs prior to filing an action, which is goal in mind. And this, so your focus should be, should be uh, as soon as your client walks in. So when you're dealing with fraud, fraud victims, there's a certain level of tact that is required, as they want to tell you their side of the story. And after all, they've been scammed, and many times they've lost significant amount of wealth. Sometimes it's their life savings. So it is important to let them know uh, or let them tell you their side of their story, to develop rapport with them, and to convince them that you're able to help them and to shepherd them through this asset recovery process. Their experience typically provides a unique perspective of how the fraudulent activity occurred and can provide specific facts relating to that scheme. So it could be, how, how did they convince you to invest? What was promised? What exactly were the terms of the deal that you entered into? Who did they interact with through each step of the process? You also want to compile every data point that you could. What email addresses were involved? phone numbers, uh, what were the locations in which they dealt? Were there any addresses involved? So were there any financial institutions? It is important to focus your interviews to obtain as much information as you can, and you always to focus on the facts, and also avoid the red herrings that may distract from the disclosure. So sometimes you deal with fraud victims, but when you're dealing with fiduciaries, such as receivers or trustees, this exercise is more straightforward as they're more fact-driven. But oftentimes they come with minimal knowledge of the facts and you actually have to assist them in developing the narrative. And this means that you have to start your investigation from the ground zero and build up. Sometimes though, you're brought in in the middle of the case to act as special counsel and this requires you to get up to speed as soon as possible. But this provides you a unique opportunity to get a second look at the pertinent evidence that has been developed and to develop potential leads from that evidence. So no matter the client, it is particularly important to focus on obtaining the facts. This, does, this, does, this doesn't necessarily uh, mean that you have to see how much the victim invested and solely what happened to the money, but it is also an opportunity to get as much detail as possible. As you, as we will see, details matter, and small details sometimes provide significant leads in asset recovery cases. And other than the relevant transactions that are issued in your investigation, what do these clients know about the business or scheme, and what trends can you discern from that information? You also want to think about what struck them as odd about the fraudster or about the scheme, were there intermediaries, other people that were involved. So you want to be on the lookout from the beginning for details that may lead to sources of further information. So if you're dealing with an individual, you want to look at who are the family members, who are the business associates. Um, if it's a company, you want to look at the officers, directors, the owners, the office managers, vendors. 
if this is an internal investigation, you want to see who was in that team, who are the secretaries, the coworkers, uh, anyone that might have been involved. You also want to look at third-party associates. And in particular, you want to pay close attention to professionals that might assist in the personal, persons of interest. Many times, it makes sense to also investigate the individual or the entities at issue to get an idea of what is their asset map and their potential ability to respond to a lawsuit or your, collect, or your ability to collect from them. And this exercise should give you an idea of whether the individuals uh, have the means to do so or not. So you may find that there are significant judgments that are pending against this individual or entity that might make your collection efforts very difficult. Or you might find the opposite, that this person has a sizable share or sizable holdings in real estate uh, throughout various places. Either way, though, this should inform your investigation going forward and should inform the next steps of, of how you conduct your case. So, for instance, we have uh, an example that we have in one of our cases uh, is where we found that a bookkeeper uh, embezzled about a million dollars within the span of three years. But, you know, our initial assessment based on investigative efforts determined that she was spending the money almost as soon as she was embezzling it. So this was important information for the client to determine what would have been the next steps uh, going forward and what were the, her potential legal um, strategy. And if you'd like to learn more about background investigations, uh, my colleagues Barbara Miranda and Carolina Gonzalez will be dedicating a podcast to discussing investigative tools, uh, which is part of the SecWorth Summer Series and will take place on August 31st, 2021. So next we'll move on to slide number seven, um, where we discuss working with a forensic accountant and understanding when to do so. So it is important to identify as early as possible the needs of your case. And after you conduct your client interview, after you review the initial documentation, and when you're when you conducted your preliminary investigations, you should have an idea of the scope of the fraudulent activity or the scheme that you're dealing with. And when the goal is to recover assets, you should have an idea of what the next steps are. And in many cases, the fraudulent activity may be easily discernible and merely require some investigating. You may be dealing with a simple fraudulent transfer fact pattern or a misrepresentation that convinced the victim to invest in uh, to invest in, 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 a, in, a, in a fraudulent scheme that is very very basic. But in some cases, uh, some fraud schemes can be complex and they may involve several bank accounts or the scheme may involve the usage of entities to conceal ownership or control. The scheme may also involve fictitious transactions to conceal the, leg the legitimacy of these transfers. Or they may involve the use of instruments uh, or you know, what we call exotic uh, means, such as cryptocurrency, to attempt to dissipate the funds. Or the scheme may also involve an active scheme to conceal the assets and the proceeds of the wrongdoing. So a layer of complexity can also be added to these fact patterns when these actions are conducted abroad, and, and they would oftentimes require the deployment of resources to foreign jurisdictions to assist your recovery efforts. 
So it is important for the client to consult with a professional with a sufficient level of experience in handling these matters, whether it be a law firm that has a history of handling these matters, or it also involves the sort of professional who have expertise in forensic work, and they are the forensic and investigative accountants. And as lawyers, our instinct is always to tackle the problem head on, and no matter what the obstacle is. But sometimes the best way to assist the client is by recognizing their own limitations and acknowledging the value of a forensic accountant or a specialized counsel could bring to the table. So next I'd like to turn over to slide number eight. And the next over the next few slides, we will discuss the tools that you can use to deconstruct fraud starting with developing the development of theories. And to deconstruct any fraud pattern, you need to build theories as to the method of the fraud, as to what is the flow of funds, as to the transfer application of the assets. Uh, and I'd like to turn it over to, to Bob now so he can talk to us a little bit about develop, the development of the theories. Thanks, Juan. The, this particular slide, we'll talk about a couple of cases. But um, developing theories, identify and analyze, is our focus, to which we add the words, it's always ongoing, as each step of the case is identified. And the assessments have to be done objectively in order to be assessed correctly. Otherwise, the forensic accountant will fail the client. So deconstructing a fraud as one develops a theory, requires fraud knowledge, and we have some examples of fraud knowledge being applied in the first case, which is entitled Clico in Trinidad. It's lesson learned number four on pages seven through nine. Now in the opening paragraph in italics, we refer to the word objectivity and fraud knowledge and here we focus on the latter, and a fraud that was committed against more than 100,000 policy and annuity holders, and ultimately against the citizens of Trinidad. Lawrence Dupre, the chairman, approached the central bank for help on January the 13th, 2009, seeking financial assistance. As part of the January 30, 2009 Memorandum of Understanding, the central bank took control of Clico and appointed a former central bank governor to oversee the financially strapped company. At the time, the consolidated financial statements disclosed that the Clico empire had some 12 billion in assets. During an extensive briefing, we learned about Clico's use of the, quote, executive flexible premium annuity, end of quote, as the vehicle to raise funds from the public at guaranteed interest rates. It immediately raised the possibility in our minds that we had a Ponzi scheme. Our questions followed, particularly, did the CLECO rate of return exceed the guaranteed interest rates? Eventually, we determined that the answer was no. In fact, it was much less and it had been going on for far too long. This was just another Ponzi scheme, but with a much larger dollar amount and the government tied into a financial bailout of the Clico empire. The speed of our diagnosis was evident in the timing. 
We received the go-ahead on April 15th, 2009, from Governor Williams, and our retention was reported by the press in an article dated May 14, 2009, entitled Central Bank Investigating CLECO. It indicated that we were retained to analyze the records of CLECO to determine whether the insurance company's financial troubles have been caused by bad judgment or corporate malfeasance, end of quote. Our investigation was to be conducted, quote, within the context of the Memorandum of Understanding signed between the central bank and CLECO as a condition of the government bailout. One month later, on June 8, 2009, an article appeared in the press, and don't ask me how these things get out, entitled, T&T Sleuth Finds Crafty CLECO Scam, end of quote, Stated in part, quote, Linkless has uncovered what is being described as an elaborate scheme within, within the uh, CL financial group where annuities with attractive returns were uh, being sold by Clico, but that the customers' monies are being funneled for ghost services to the group. We had obtained the following statement, amongst many others, from the former CFO, through our interview process. He noted, quote, what would happen, therefore, is that a customer would borrow money from, say, Republic Bank, which was a local bank down in Port of Spain, Trinidad, at, say, 9%, fully backed by an EFPA policy purchased from Clico at a rate of return of, say, 12.5%, with the customer earning a 3.5% margin and a simple back-to-back arrangement. So, with the application of our fraud knowledge, we still had to assemble the case. And given the nature of a Ponzi and a 12 billion and 12 billion of supposed assets, we also expected that corporate assets would disappear as management realized the end was near. We were again correct. Each asset disposal had its own story that had to be pursued. Uh- now, Bob, this, this is a very interesting case, and uh, particularly where it became evident to you that based on your initial review that this looked like a Ponzi scheme, right? So, and, and from that, you were able to, inve- uh, to guide your investigation. So what other documents did you look at to confirm this theory? Well, the, uh, again, staying with the big picture, because this was early on in our discussions, we reviewed the unconsolidated financial statements of the significant subsidiaries and then the consolidated financial statement of the top holding company. And in this big picture, we saw an ongoing growth of the EFPA liability and its related interest costs. On the other side, we had ongoing growth and operating losses in these companies. To complete the answer, let's refer to another aspect of fraud knowledge, and that's the interview process. Or in the case of live investigations, it is better referred to as humbly mingling, humbly mingling with management and their employees, just like we did in the IBM case, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The friends accountant must think of and acknowledge the sensitivity required to properly assess the position of each person. And here it is Clico's CFO. Remember, this is a government takeover, but these companies are still operating 
with the same management people, except for Dupre, who had to set a, stand aside. So with this in mind, his cooperation was forthcoming, and we reviewed the financial statements. He acknowledged our read of the corporate situation. We've already referred to one of his comments. Here's one more. Quote, it was also evident that the cash inflows by dividend inflows from subsidiaries was grossly insufficient to deal with interest and principal repayments due to its existing borrowings, end of quote. So our Ponzi findings were confirmed in the statement of claim where the attorneys referred to two Ponzi schemes, an internal Ponzi scheme that they described as management procured improper diversion and misappropriation of Coleco's money, including policyholders' money, to fund group entities, often in return for worthless or wholly inadequate purported consideration and or security. And the external Ponzi scheme where management procured improper dealing with new money from policyholders and mutual fund investors, including improperly funding redemptions and repayments to existing policyholders slash investors without sufficient or any proper regard to what was required to fund future liabilities to them, end of quote. So in summary, fraud knowledge allowed for an early diagnosis with an immediate focus on the next step. It's very interesting, Bob. Thank you. Um, the, so, what is another case in which ability to identify fraud patterns and, and you know develop your theories uh, assist to you in the kind of a fraud matter? I would like to refer to lesson learned number seven, which is on pages twenty to twenty-two of the handout. It's entitled Rappaport in Antigua. And, and yes, I, I think uh, the audience understands I do enjoy working in the Caribbean. Um, here, again, the opening paragraph is in italics, and we refer to objectivity, but here we want to address the value, again, of fraud knowledge in order to deconstruct the fraud committed upon the citizens of Antigua. Justin Simon, the Attorney General, for the newly elected Prime Minister Spencer, retained us after the March 2004 election. If you know anything about Antigua, you'll know that the Byrd family has been in power there for some 50 years, with one four-year exception, but now they were no longer in power. And when the lost election became apparent on election night, Trucks and party supporters were busy removing documents from the office of the Prime Minister and from the Ministry of Finance office since Lester Byrd, as Prime Minister, held both positions. Our main date was simple. The Attorney General told me, he said, look, we've got rumors about the Antiguan shipping registry that was located in Germany. Was there any documentation in the remaining files to permit sufficient inquiry into the registry was his question. So we respected the mandate, of course, but we knew that in political corruption cases, this is the fraud knowledge, it is essential to incur offshore financial transactions to succeed in any scheme designed for personal enrichment. With this fraud knowledge, we examined all files in the only three remaining filing cabinets that were located in the two offices. We were looking for a transfer of funds out of Antigua. 
One was found, and it became the IHI debt settlement case that ultimately resulted in the recovery of $12 million. And I want to give a brief overview. There was a monthly transfer of $269,000 that was seen in a file going from a government bank account to a company named IHI Debt Settlement with this bank account in Bermuda. It was believed that the $269,000 was being paid to IHI in Japan to reduce the government's debt given the name of the bank account. The source of the funds was a consumption tax payment that a company in Antigua called WIOC paid monthly to the government from the revenue that it received from the citizens' purchase of petroleum products, in particular retail gasoline. This meant that the source of funds was, in essence, guaranteed. Now, WIOC had a monopoly. And it was controlled by a gentleman by the name of Bruce Rappaport, who lived in Switzerland. By way of background, in November 1996, the government had authorized Rappaport to renegotiate the repayment of its debt with IHI in Japan that had been incurred with the Japanese construction company back in the 1980s. So in the three filing cabinets, we found this rather complete file. And in it was not only this transfer, but a letter dated November 1999 from Rappaport to the Prime Minister, Bert, where he noted that from the monthly payment of 269000 an amount of 199000 was transferred to IHI in Japan for the debt repayment. And then he identified 56000 was his, quote, monthly cost for settling the debt, end of quote. And the balance of 13000 was his, quote, monthly success fee, end of quote. The latter two amounts were not consistent with the representations made to government and the public, and therefore they became the target of the investigation, primarily through an international funds tracing initiative. Fraud knowledge also includes an awareness of the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty, MLAT for short, and one existed between Antigua and Bermuda. We prepared the case summary and the document to request under the MLAT, and it was submitted by the Attorney General to his colleague in Bermuda. The International Asset Tracing Mechanism was established. We eventually determined that these payments continued until January 2006, and with the monthly excess funds flowing from Antigua to Bermuda, then we found they were transferred to what we've called here an interested parties company that was located at another bank in Bermuda. And from there, distributions were made to interested parties related to Byrd's political party. So we estimated that Rappaport collected between December 1996 and January 2006 an amount of $14.4 million that represented funds paid to IHI debt settlement in excess of the payments that were made to IHI in Japan. The bottom line here is that in February 2009, the Attorney General issued a statement to advise of the recovery of $12 million 
from the Rappaport family in Switzerland. It's very, uh, that's very interesting, Bob. Uh, and I think this, this example illustrates a few points to consider. I think first, uh, you know, it was initially narrow and you commenced your investigative or failed this narrow task to investigate the registry. In the course of your investigation and while you analyze this evidence, you were able to identify another another subcase in a way. And this eventually led you to recover $12 million uh, from IHI. So I think this highlights of keeping an open mind to your fraud knowledge that you never know what you might find as you're reviewing the evidence and avoiding that tunnel vision that a lot of times uh, plague This is particularly the case when you're given a, uh, you know, a significant access to a vast amount of data. And I think the second point to highlight here is the importance of being familiar with the mechanism that assists uh, multi-jurisdictional investigation. So in this example, you noted uh, MLAC uh, between two Caribbean jurisdictions that were the key to facilitate the exchange of information among those two jurisdictions. But uh, I think typically MLATs are used in the criminal in criminal cases, but I think in civil cases, uh, you can use letters rogatory or letters of assistance to obtain assistance from a foreign court. And if you're dealing with an insolvency scenario, I think it's important to note that you know you may also seek to recognize a trustee in the foreign jurisdiction to facilitate their actions and assist your investigations. Yeah, and I think we're going to find application of this as we talk about one or two of the cases where um, we're forced to retain foreign foreign international or foreign counsel in order to pursue uh, recoveries, for example, in in marital cases and, and the like. Well, one thing we should point out here. In regard to MLATs, and this is particularly so in political corruption cases because it involves governments who change due to elections, the key issue here is time. Uh, so I want to give this brief example of the case that uh, I did for the Attorney General in St. Lucia after their party had won the November 2011 general election. The investigation involved certain activities of the opposition party obviously, who had just lost the election. In regard to the Hamanor Airport, that was conducted during the years 2008 to 2011. And I'll refer to this case a little bit later. Um, as the case evolved, an MLAT submission was made to the U.S. Department of Justice. As I mentioned, the MLAT process takes time, given that this request is made to another country, and the request is not singular. Today, MLATs represent big business amongst the treaty countries. Hence, the forensic account needs to emphasize the time issue to the client. So the Attorney General had submitted the MLAT to which the U.S. Department of Justice had confirmed our case. And we were awaiting their document delivery when the Prime Minister called for an early election in 2016. What happened? He lost the election. And the opposition party, who were subject of the investigation, was returned to government. The existence of the MLAT and its impending U.S. response became public. However, we do not know what was received, if anything, 
nor are we aware of any further statement by the former opposition party as to what happened. So the point is simply that MLAT timing is a key issue in political corruption cases, and the, and the forensic accountant has got to make sure that the client is fully aware of these issues. Thank you, Bob. Um, and I'd like to uh, make a quick stop in our presentation uh, to comply with the New York regulations for New York attorneys that are looking for CLE credit in New York, and you know we'll need to provide a code. So this code is intended for the West Legal Ed Center audience, either live or on demand. And I will read this code twice and only twice and cannot repeat it or email it to you, so please make note of it. The, un the New York State code number is SA31163. Seven two eight two one. Again, the New York State code number is S A three one one six two. I'm sorry, six three seven two eight two one. And now moving on with our presentation, we're going to move to slide number nine, in which we're going to discuss the focus how focusing on the origins is another tool that you might use in deconstructing fraud. So when you're conducting an investigation, you're analyzing the data, understanding the fraud and the fraudster's intent oftentimes requires focusing not just on recent transactions, but it also you should also focus on the earlier transactions that might more easily reveal the initial fraudulent activity. So when we're approaching the analysis this way, it will allow you to develop the MO. And we have selected a couple of case studies to illustrate this point. And Bob, I think you selected a couple. Can you please uh, go tell us about them? Yes, I've got uh, uh, I've got four cases here. I'll try to be very brief because I'm keeping an eye on, on the clock. I'm referring to lesson learned number five, which is on pages 10 through 16 in the handout. The first case is, a, is called Gray Mac. It ha this one happened in Canada. At the time it happened, this was the largest fraud in Canada. So large that a public inquiry was launched <clears throat> by the provincial government of Ontario with a focus on the very last transaction, a $500 million sale of over 10,000 apartments that realized a $230 million profit. It involved Saudi Arabian investors located in the Grand Cayman and the business activity was property flips. And what I mean by a property flip is you you acquire a property, or in this case, the, the fraudulent the fraud artist acquires a property from a legitimate vendor. And then when he takes ownership, he immediately flips the property at a much higher value to a nominee. Under the nominee's name, an application is made for a mortgage to fund the nominee's purchase. Obviously, the mortgage application is fraudulent, but the mortgage company complied, and funds are then made available to the fraudster uh, to do what he wishes. Uh, one of the things, of course, is to begin making the monthly payments on the mortgage. But the excess funds then are available for personal use or for other purposes. So subsequently, though, the Attorney General in Ontario launched a criminal investigation 
and we were retained by the Attorney General to assist the police. Given the difficulties that were experienced by the public inquiry at the international level, we pursued documentation from the early days of property flips, and with this approach, we established the method of operation, that is the MO, steps that were consistent with the $500 million transaction. So the fraud knowledge here, the lesson here is that in the early days, the nominee in this property flip was not an ARAB, and the location for the property flip was not the Grand Cayman. To the contrary, all the activity took place in Ontario in small towns like Elmvale and Collingwood. The initial property transactions were small in dollar value, placed in local jurisdictions, and involved local nominees under whose names applications were made for mortgages. However, mortgage approvals for the nominees soon became more difficult. And that was the reason for the early purchase by this gentleman, Bill Player, who was the lead fraud artist. Uh, the excess mortgage proceeds were set aside and were used, including about $450,000, to fund, along with the bank loan, the purchase of Seaway Trust Company for $1.5 million way back in 1980. Now funds for the nominee buyers were more readily available, and to keep the scheme alive, the property flips had to continuously increase in sale and mortgage amounts eventually reaching $500 million being the last transaction. So the lesson here and the focus here on deconstructing a fraud is go early, where the paperwork is easier, where the transactions are more straightforward, where the identification of intent through the pattern of conduct of the transactions becomes easier to establish and confirm. Perfect. Yeah, and, and as you indicated, Bob, this you know this case highlights the recurring theme that in many of these fraudulent schemes, you know the fraudster not just a one-up operation, and we see that many times the fraudster has a test period initially where they develop the method that allows them to test their own you know their own fraud their own fraud scheme. So you know we see that this same pattern occurs late or earlier, but with much smaller transactions a lot of times. And obviously, over time, these transactions get bigger, and those are the ones that make the headlines, obviously. So, uh, Bob, I think you're going to also go over Uticot in Trinidad. Yes, sir. Uh, Uticot is a state-owned entity in Trinidad. It was the primary property developer with assets in excess of $1 billion at the end of fiscal 2007. Calder Hart was chairman from 2002 through August 2006, and he had been chairman when CareMath Limited was denied back in 2003 and 2005 when CareMath had submitted bids in its attempt to win construction projects that were in excess of $100 million. And on both occasions, Karameth was denied because they were found to be lacking in the financial construction management and or management capability, end of quote. But in 2006, with Hart as chairman, Karameth Limited was awarded a contract for the construction of the Brian Laura Stadium 
at a cost of some $200 million. In short, the project failed, and so significant was this event that the UFF Commission was announced, and in March 2010, it issued its report, and in regard to the Brian Lohr matter, their focus was on the was only on the 2006 transaction between uh, Caramath Limited and Uticott. Um, they had their things to save, and one of the things they concluded was the recommendation for a police investigation. So we were retained by the Attorney General, and we took the same approach we just discussed in the Graymat case. We focused on the, we went in and found the existence of the 2003 and 2005 bid attempts by Karamath and Uticott's response to show that Hart had knowledge from these prior two, two attempts, and yet he proceeded to award the contract to Karamath in 2006. So these findings became a basis in the April 2013 statement of claim against former Chairman Hart for breach of fiduciary duty, as is detailed in pages 12 through 14 in the handout. Thank you, uh, Bob. And so now we're going to move on to slide number 10, which is uh, another tool in the, that would assist you in reconstructing fraud, which is aiming to understand the whole. And a key component uh, in deconstructing fraud is understanding how the scheme operates, how the whole works. For instance, if you analyze financial transactions and you look at, and once you're able to identify what was the normal business relationship or what was the normal course of business, uh, you know, you're going to be able to determine what is the regular flow of funds, how the tra which transactions are conducted regularly, and see what is the pattern of conduct. But and then you will be able to identify situations that occur outside the ordinary course to develop leads that will likely further your case. And there are situations where the whole scheme is fraudulent, such as when a spouse obfuscates their asset holdings in anticipation for divorce proceeding, or when a debtor does the same anticipation anticipating a negative result uh, in a lawsuit. Uh, and so understanding the whole in these situations is paramount to localize and ultimately recover the assets. And one other point to emphasize here is that understanding the understanding of the scheme allows us to develop into the to delve into the human conduct, which also informs the element of intent. And on that note in slide ten, we're talking about the the aim to understand the whole ultimately results in the study, again, of the human conduct. And as in slide five, we mentioned that the mind is the key target in deconstructing a fraud. So here we have an example of events that are not in the normal course of business and personal conduct, plus some additional fraud knowledge as we deconstruct the financial improprieties to understand the whole picture. I'm going to refer to lesson number six, which is on pages 17 through 19, entitled, Roger is too busy to chat. Roger was in charge of the reutilization department at IBM. And this is in Poughkeepsie, New York. 
and he had been faced with findings provided by field investigators through the general counsel that computers intended for dismantle had been found in the gray market. And, of course, the purpose of the reutilization department was to deal with the dismantling of, uh, of uh, computers deemed no longer uh, proper to be sold. Uh, the precious metals were to be set aside and, and so on and so forth. Um, but that was not happening. And so our mandate was to determine if any person within this department was involved. There was one other side issue. The general counsel advised that their internal audit group had just concluded their review of the reutilization department two weeks earlier with all findings satisfactory, and he wanted them to work with us. And that was no problem. So at the start, the general counsel met with Roger and his staff to introduce us and to advise of our joint investigation with the director of internal audit. To start the case, the director and myself met with Roger. After the usual preliminaries, the interview started, but within a few minutes, Roger focused the conversation on the stress arising from his sick wife when he suddenly had to excuse himself to attend another meeting. Now, in the normal course, if Roger had been honest, he would have given us all the time we required since these allegations had dogged his department for some time. We could have provided Roger with instant relief. This was personal conduct, not in the normal course. So we quickly knew we had a case. Now we just needed to investigate and assemble the findings. So first, let's now talk about pre-entry case preparation. It is a fact that at the start of the meeting with Roger, our homework was done. When a forensic accountant is retained by a corporation, the keys to the electronic world of the company are made available. Research allowed us to become well-informed not only of the bid rigging, and that was for the dismantle process and its related money movement, but also the details of a separate business whereby Roger was importing what they call TCMs, thermal, thermal conduction modules from Japan, also for the gray market. So during the daytime, our requests for bid-related documents and discussions with various staff were undertaken. But at night, we did this about every other night, after the staff went home, we would search the office space to locate where the TCMs were physically stored. The first search found them in an unused office, well off in a quarter. About a week later, we went back and in our second search, they were in the same location, but now they were covered with cardboard. And, I mean, what was kind of cool here is we had to break into the office. We had to break into all these offices eventually, but we didn't have the person. We didn't involve the people that had the keys. So we would climb into the office next door, look over, and there they were. Anyway, each time pictures were taken, it was a lot of fun. I'm going to come back to that point in a moment. So here are some other fraud knowledge points now. During our interview with Roger, his three cohorts who were also tied into this, my staff were interviewing them at the same time. They were kept separate, but the timing was the same. Secondly, a document, usually in bed rigging, 
a document exists where the bids are compared based upon price per component. Strong examples of a rigged bid appear when the list of the component prices provided by the successful, quote, bracket, rigged bid, and here's three conditions, and this is called making the document talk. When the prices for the components in in a zero or five, for example, $10.15, while the other bidder's price end with an assortment of prices. Secondly, a pattern appears where the price provided is consistently 1% to 10% less than the highest price offered by the other bidders. And finally, the highest volume component has the greatest low price discrepancy. You look at this document and it's just talking to you. All those indicators are there and these are fraud knowledge indicators of the potentiality of a bid rig. So to close this, uh, first of all, the Director of Internal Audit came away with a better understanding of the importance of professional skepticism. But more interesting, it was the General Counsel, the Director, Outside Counsel, and ourselves met with Roger to advise of our findings. The General Counsel held out his two hands as if the scale of justice. Then he heard, then he said, when I heard the first finding, and he lowered his right hand because the first finding was pretty clear-cut. And then with the second finding, he further lowered his right hand. And then he concluded the meeting by advising Roger that he had two weeks to bring his right hand up to balance the left. Well, after two weeks, we returned to site to hear Roger's response. It was quiet. However, upon our return, we found the TCMs in the same situation, but now they were in large filing cabinets. The general counsel had deliberately made no mention of this finding and had placed the building under 24-hour surveillance during the two weeks. The results are presented on pages 17 through 19 of the handout. Um, Thanks, Bob. I think uh, I think we're going to move over to slide 11 now. Uh, I know we had a another case study to go, but in the interest of time so we can get through our materials. And slide number 11 discusses uh, another practice pointer in deconstructing fraud, which is testing your theories. And Bob, when is the right time to test your theories when you're deconstructing fraud? You're doing it all the time. As I said here, you never stop. Uh, earlier under mindset, I mentioned the reference to puzzle pieces. So when the next piece fits, you automatically conduct a new assessment of your theory. It's simply ongoing. Um, that's the nature of an investigation. So here in slide 11, testing your, your, your theories, it's just as I said, it's a constant ongoing process. As each piece is added, the typical first step is to objectively assess the available information provided by the client. Um, and in this particular case example, it involves uh, the U.S. government has come after our client for with alleging tax fraud. And um, as we see quite often, a company, when they're first confronted with the U.S. government, they have their external auditor come in because they're the ones who prepared the tax return and they're the ones who know the business 
So in this, what happened here is the the client called his uh, uh, external auditor to come in to prepare a work product. The role of the external auditor is normal in matters where government alleges a tax fraud, given that they have the most tax and client knowledge, but they lack knowledge of the nuances involved in a criminal case of alleged tax fraud. So I'm referring to lesson number eight, which is on page 23, entitled Sunrider in Asia. Early in preparing an initial response to the tax avoidance allegations of the U.S. government, Sunrider's external auditor was asked to create a schedule to present a global source and use of funds amongst the related companies located in U.S. and Asia. This accounting was done, but in a way that created the appearance of one pool of money, and this document, instead of being helpful, became one basis for the U.S. government to seize certain assets of the husband and wife located in California. Subsequently, working with the attorneys, we reviewed this schedule and determined that the money generated from business sales in the United States had no direct relationship to the assets seized in the U.S. The direct linkage suggested by the pooled accounting statement did not exist. So it's essential that a forensic accountant identify all relevant information that is good and bad for the case in order to identify an out, some quotation marks, that could create some degree of doubt in the plaintiff's case. And these outs must be top of mind as the financial information is assessed. As I said early on at the start of this presentation, we're looking for both the good news and the bad news. In this particular case, it was very important to identify all the possible outs, no matter how small, to create doubt in the plaintiff's case. And the penalty at the end of the day uh, was very much softened by the very good work done by attorneys in this case on behalf of uh, the husband and the wife. Thank you, Bob. And now moving on to slide number 12, using discovery to assist an in investigation. Uh, as Bob indicated earlier, you know, it's important to work with your forensic team to develop sources of information and craft document requests to maximize the information you could obtain. So our legal process provides for pretty liberal discovery, and we should make use of it to develop theories, to confirm our theories, and to unwind fraudulent activity. Obtaining information from the wrongdoer and the related parties prior to the commencement of the action or even at beginning stages of the action is generally helpful, particularly if it's turned over voluntarily. But we should always be mindful of the source of the information and be on the lookout for inconsistencies. So when you're dealing with a fraudster or related entities to the fraudster, you'll likely find that the information that is produced might, uh, is not complete. And it could be that the statements that are missing are the statements that show the key transactions or that the disclosure that you're, you're getting highlights certain documents and transactions to throw you off the scent of the trail. In other situations, the fraudster may be deceased, which makes it impossible, obviously, to get information from him. You may also find that certain records may be doctored. So the most, the most difficult part in recovering value uh, in these cases is the possible lack of cooperation and obstruction by the fraudster. Obviously, you know, depending on your case, you could obtain appropriate sanctions, right? Um, but as we all know, 
sanctions or a judgment uh, in our favor could be an empty result if we're unable to enforce the judgment and ultimately recover the assets. Similarly, if you're assisting a trustee or receiver in, in an insolvency context, the goal is also to recover assets for the creditor body. And if there's misconduct by the debtor um, and you obtain a remedy denying a debtor's discharge, for instance, that is a little benefit when you can't recover assets for the for your creditors. We have also discussed situations where the leads take us to offshore jurisdictions. So in cases where you're pursuing assets abroad, you have to be cognizant of the tools that are provided by that foreign jurisdiction. This typically requires engagement of competent foreign counsel, but having a minimal understanding also helps you. So for instance, if your case is in the insolvency context, you may consider, obviously in consultation with foreign counsel, whether the trustee could be recognized under the ancestral model law uh, on cross-border insolvency. Or, you know, you, the trustee could also obtain recognition in that jurisdiction through other methods. Uh, it is something to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. You can also make use of letter rogatories and letters of assistance to request cooperation of a foreign court to assist your discovery efforts. And we have seen that many jurisdictions also provide for mechanisms to compel third parties to disclose information. Next, we're gonna turn over to slide number 13, which discusses subpoenas. And as we've discussed so far, the most important part of any fraud case is the development of the evidence. And this is what drives your asset recovery efforts and informs your legal remedies. And perhaps the most important tool in our arsenal as uh, you know, in unwinding the fraud is the ability to issue subpoenas to command the testimony and the production of documents from third parties who possess knowledge and relevant information. This may include a bank, for instance, that will provide you with complete record of statements, complete wire transfer data, account opening information, among other things. Obviously, you could always obtain uh, records that are authenticated uh, and also a business record affidavit that would allow, allow you to satisfy evidential requirements that will assist you in your case. And the same applies for most institutional third party parties that hold information that is related to the fraudster or the scheme. So by the time you file your legal action, you have already conducted interviews, you have reviewed and analyzed the pertinent documentation, and you should have created a list of potential targets that could lead you to additional information. You should have also prioritized the targets by the type of information you could obtain from them. So when you're issuing subpoenas, the first category of targets should be the obvious sources of information and you should always seek to exhaust these initial sources uh, of information uh, as you're beginning your investigation. So this includes family members and associates, right? Uh, but we shouldn't just think of spouses and partners, but we should try to expand this to also include exes. So was the individual married or in a relationship before? And we have found, um, if the answer is yes, we have found that you know, exes tend to be more forthcoming a lot of times about a person's feelings. And uh, they're not, uh, you know, sometimes we've seen that, you know, family members might be threat may feel threatened to disclose information. And that sort of threat, those sort of threats are generally not as compelling with exes. The same concept applies for business associates. We also need to look at whether there are entities related, related to the fraudster. Or, uh, or entities related to family members and associates. So 
So oftentimes we've seen that the target may have transferred their assets or part of their assets to family members or associates or to an entity that is under their control. And they typically, uh, the arrangement is that they will keep these assets until the coast is clear. Or sometimes we see that they just transfer the asset outright and they will just continue with the understanding that they will continue to derive benefit of that asset. Other targets are banks, insurance companies, investment banks, financial institutions that typically will provide you the key detailed information as to the day-to-day transactions of the person of interest. You also want to look at tax returns. And when dealing with entities, you want to look at internal accounting records, bookkeeping systems, such as QuickBooks, for instance, and any other uh, financial data, such as other financial statements. And you also, you also want to look at professionals. And these include, this is a big category. It includes accountants, bookkeepers, consultants, wealth managers, realtors, brokers, and lawyers. And this is... Uh, these are individuals who have significant information and specialized information that that pertains to underlying transactions or schemes and that may provide much needed clarity in your investigation. And I'd like to give particular pay particular focus today to attorneys, as attorneys may have valuable information that could be provided, but oftentimes we see that lawyers are discouraged from subpoenaing other lawyers. And you know, and, and the, the reasoning behind that is that, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be hit with objections under the attorney-client privilege or work product privilege. But it is important to understand from your standpoint that not all the information is protected. There are exceptions to the attorney-client privilege, as not all communications are privileged, for instance. That's the starting point. Also, note that there are various situations that could lead to the waiver of privilege, particularly in cases involving fraud. It might be that, you know, there was a voluntary uh, waiver, or it might be that the crime fraud exception applies. Uh, There are other times where the engagement of an attorney may not be for legal reasons, but it might just be for a business purpose. And it is important to keep this in mind when you're determining whether to craft a subpoena to an attorney and, you know, and dealing with the expected objections. In fact, in a couple of our cases, what we've seen is, uh, you know, we've we've been able to penetrate the privilege objections, and after obtaining the relevant information, we were able to unveil the structure that was built by the judgment debtor in those situations to conceal their assets. So, in addition to these, I guess, more obvious sources uh, or most more obvious targets, it is also important to think outside the box when you're developing your leads to collect more evidence. So after you go through an initial group of targets and you have exhausted what we will, I guess, call the low-hanging fruit in terms of available evidence, that doesn't mean that our job is done. Uh, sometimes that just means you're getting started. And nowadays, fraudsters use complex schemes to conceal and dissipate assets. So we need to focus on the details. So if you believe that there are additional individuals who may provide relevant information or additional sources, but you're unable to identify them, uh, or you may have hit a, a, a roadblock in your investigation of similar sorts, it helps to think of additional methods of obtaining information. Um, and oftentimes, understanding the lifestyle of the fraudster will help you uncover potential leads. 
For instance, if you're digging into the bank statements, it helps to think, well, where is this person spending all of their money? Where are they spending their time? Uh, in one of our cases, we were able to determine that after review of the financial uh, of their bank statements, that they frequented a country club monthly and spent significant sums there. And after crafting a document required to or subpoena in that country club, we were able to identify his golfing partner, his longtime golfing partner, who was sent, who then provided us with significant information. So thinking outside the box sometimes to identify his third parties uh, that may have relevant information pays off. Uh, you also have to think about, well, can you find information regarding phone, uh, when you're looking and analyzing phone records, email providers, utility providers? And a lot of times these providers, these targets will get back with objections or that refuse to disclose information on the basis of confidentiality. Um, and it is true that a lot of information is confidential these days. But part of our job in crafting requests is to try to obtain the non-confidential information and then use that information in order to make use of it as we're gathering intelligence. You can also try to find information from providers that deal with third parties on a tangential basis. So this might include um, you know, third parties that service utility providers or third parties that serve that serve um, travel providers, and the same for consumer services. These are only some of the options uh, of the type of subpoenas that you can craft or the, the targets that you can look into that can assist your investigation. And you know, we're gonna go over, we have a few more case studies to go through in slides 14 and 15, and I'll go, I'll go through the one of slide 14. I know that we're running out of time, so I'll try to be, I'll try to be quick. So in slide 14, uh, you know, it's a fact situation that we had in one of our cases in which we dealt with the issue of completeness, completeness that allow us to uh, find significant, uh, that allowed us to deconstruct a, a, a small, small fraud within one of our cases. So in sequence, a husband and wife own 20% interest in a limited liability company and then it transferred the interest to, the, to a friend, uh, the husband's friend. And then the husband and wife filed for bankruptcy about a year later. And their schedules disclosed that they sold that interest in that LLC to the friend in exchange for forgiveness of a debt that they owed to the friend, which they claimed to be of higher value. So the transfer documented that the consideration was for ten dollars though. And the identification and for the identification of the acts of the of the husband as manager of that limited liability company. So that, those inconsistent statements led us to seek more document requests, seek more documents. And we saw documents that evidence the alleged debt, um, and then we found that these were, that there were key issues in there, and that the debt was not owned by the husband, but by his company. We also sought the key ones of the company to ensure, to see whether in the, you know, in the filings, in the tax filings, who figured as the owner of the interest. And we found that the husband and the wife were continuing to be listed as the owners of the LLC. So, you know, this was, I guess, a successful pursuit of the completeness issue that created a, a definitive statement of ownership in connection with this LLC interest. And in addition, um, the friend and the husband attempted to create a flow of funds 
throughout this pro throughout this process, and where and whereby the friend was sending monthly transfers to the husband through inter intermediary uh, labeled as the, for the interest that was being transferred. But obviously, I think at the end, our complete review indicated that the husband and the wife were merely attempting to part their interest in that LLC with the friend until the end of their bankruptcy. And this information then allowed us to develop strong, a strong evidentiary basis to support our case going forward. And I'll turn it over to Bob to deal with the last uh, case study that we have in, in slide number 15. Uh, thanks, Juan. I'll be I'll be brief with this case. Uh, it's a matrimonial case, as you know from slide 15, uh, referred to on pages 26 and 28 of the handout about the second wife and the third wife. Uh, this tale started with a debtor in his 80s who filed for bankruptcy, but not his much younger wife. And he declared as he, he basically declared no assets but for $2,500. However, it became evident after his initial interview with the trustee that he was a person of substantial means. And what made the matters worse is that the debtor died three months later. So we linked the debtor to a few companies which he had used to hold real estate in the past. Our review of the transactions of one of these entities showed a property purchase in 2003 that was sourced entirely from a bank account in Switzerland. And that same property was sold in 2008 and the sale proceeds were transferred back to a bank account in Switzerland. Offshore banking had been established beyond a doubt. This was the initial hook we needed as we built from these initial transactions to discover other transfers from Europe in a subsequent document production that related to two other domestic property purchases that created a solid evidentiary base to allow the client to move the case forward to the next level, the pursuit of international bank accounts. We have a final comment to make on international financial matters. It is crucial to pursue every little financial detail as any one detail may open a door to another maze of transactions. And the deposition of the debtor uh, taken a few months prior to his death, he referred briefly to a, quote, friend of mine, end of quote. We took the name of the friend and we aggressively conducted internet research and we found that his friend lived in Geneva, Switzerland, and has done so for many years. When both banks produced documentation, these are banks based in Europe, prominent in the management of the accounts was the friend. In fact, the friend at the time of the deposition was managing two real estate projects in London with the value of some $5 million for the debtor. So with this information, we just had to look back to the debtor's responses in his deposition. One question, did he ever act as a financial advisor for you? Answer, I've asked him questions about finances and so forth. Question, has he handled any finances for you? Answer, way back. The debtor's brief mention of the friend became the focus on the case going forward. In the end, we created a natural business storyline that led to the development of a solid evidentiary base to support international document requests for the production of offshore information to establish funds that ultimately led to an asset recovery. 
And on that note, uh, that completes our presentation on the subject of forensic accounting, and we thank you very, very much for your interest. Thanks, Bob. I think we actually have one last slide, and that's a causes of action slide. And I know we have, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to be very brief and highlight a couple points. Um, here are some causes of action that you can pursue in these fraud-based fact patterns. And uh, the two points I wanted to make first, um, you know, having the element of surprise is key in many of these cases, particularly where you're pursuing assets and, you know, there's, this, there's a history of dissipation. So it's important to pay particular attention to your jurisdiction's local rules to determine whether and also how you could obtain relief ex parte, uh, particularly when you're in hot pursuit of assets. Um, you don't want your case to be derailed because of a procedural issue. So it's important to be aware of how the rules apply in your, in your jurisdiction. And the second point is to be mindful of disclosing your investigation and your filing. Providing a roadmap of your theories of where you're going, where you're in where you are with your investigation and where you're going with your investigation, it could cause, it could uh, provide, a, you know, you're telegramming to the fraudster or the other people that have access to these files to further, uh, to how to continue their asset dissipation or concealment or where you are, how close you are to getting to them. So in these cases, it pays, uh, you know, it pays to learn or to, to have a plan of how to disclose this little of your investigation as possible, and you might even warrant perhaps trying to file under seal. And this is, uh, this is uh, these are the two points I wanted to make. Uh, I, unfortunately, we don't have time for comments or questions today, but if you have any comments or questions, our information is in slide number 17. Uh, thank you to all. It has been a pleasure uh, having you in today's podcast.